We're finishing chapter 21. From, uh, from verse 33 to the end of the chapter, let me pray for us as we come to the word and then we will look at it. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the perfection of it. We thank you for the inerrancy of it, the infallibility of it. We thank you for preserving it. Uh, we live in a time where uh, the, the vast majority of people and even people often who claim to be Christians have no set standard of truth. They simply go with whatever feels right at the moment. Uh, your word hasn't changed because you haven't changed. We thank you for preserving it in the way that you have. Uh, not only that we would know that what we have is true, but that we would have the ability today through technology that, that really everyone in the room today could look at those originals if they desired to take the time and see that what you preserve throughout history remains consistent. <clears throat> so bless us as we come to this time. Help us to come in humility with soft hearts. Uh, help us to come eager to believe, eager to see the truth, ready to listen to our Savior. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me provide you with just the context for this passage very briefly. Uh, in, uh, in Matthew 21, 23, Jesus returns to the temple. I think it's probably taking place on Tuesday by this point. And uh, he is confronted by chief priests and elders who want to know the source and the nature of his authority. He agrees to tell them if they would first tell him where John the Baptist reveal, uh, received his authority. They decide that they don't have a straightforward answer to give, and so they refuse to tell him, and he refuses to give them a straightforward answer. And instead, he launches into a series of parables. Uh, the first parable we looked at last week about the, the, the man with two sons, the vineyard owner, he, goes to each of the sons and says, go to work in the vineyard. And the first son says, uh, sure, uh, or says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. But then he regrets it and he goes. The second son says, sure, no problem, I'll do that. But he doesn't go. And then Jesus asks the, the chief priests, the elders, who are identified as Pharisees in verse 45, by the way, uh, which son did the will of his father? Well, it was the son who went, not the son who said he would go but the son who actually went. And Jesus made a pretty pointed application of that. Uh, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. And even when the tax collectors and, pro and prostitutes and the drunks and, and, and all else repented and God transformed them, you wouldn't believe then either. So, you're way behind them. And then he tells them another parable that we're going to look at this morning. And, and, and by the way, he is going to give them yet another parable next week. So today is beginning of verse 33. Listen to another parable, he says. 
there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, well, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So there's the parable. It starts out like all of Jesus' parables. It starts out with something that is uh, part of daily life, part of regular life, something they're very accustomed to. Jesus never told them a parable saying there was a monkey that could fly and play the piano at the same time. And while it was doing this, he didn't do that. They came from real life experiences. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took some yeast and kneaded it into dough. Well, everybody could relate to that. The kingdom of God is like a man who went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell on the road and some of the rocky places and some of the thorny places and some on good field. See, those are just normal events. So in this parable, the landowner plants a vineyard, puts a wall around it, digs a wine press, builds a tower, rents it out to tenant farmers and goes away. Very understandable. Nothing shocking there. The harvest time comes. He sends his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. Nothing surprising there. The vine growers take a bit of a turn. They, they beat and kill and stone his slaves. So he sent another group of slaves to them. Jesus doesn't tell us why, doesn't tell us what the thought processes are. He just sent a larger group. And they did the same thing to them. And then it gets really weird. The landowner sends his son. And these guys decide, the, the vine growers decide, that if they kill the son, they can have his inheritance. Uh, that's not how that works. My, my brother and I are set to in, inherit from my mom when the Lord finally uh, calls her home. Uh so you could kill me, but if you do, she's not going to name you as an heir. <laughs> but the very insanity of it, the very absurdity of it, is part of the story. So that's, that's the parable. It, there's nothing <coughs> really detailed about it. But Jesus asks a question of the chief priests and the elders. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? It's um, a good question. I, I just want to emphasize something to you here. Jesus never calls the vine growers anything but vine growers. He doesn't say a man built a vineyard, leased it to vine growers, sent his slaves to the vine growers, and those wicked men took his slaves and beat them. And then he sent another group of slaves, and those, those just despicable men abused them. And then they sent his son and those just absolutely wretched, vicious men. He just keeps calling them vine growers. He, 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 it's as though he, he's not trying to feed any conclusions 
to these men. He just wants them to listen to the story and respond. Well, they give him a pretty good answer. They will, uh, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Um, the, the, there's a phrase there that's really interesting. He uses the word wretches and wretched end, and, and it, the first word describes these vine growers, they're wretches. And then the second word, which is the same root uh, Greek word, describes their, their end. So wretched men receive a wretched end. Despicable men receive a despicable men. Violent men receive a violent men that, that, or violent end, that, that kind of an idea. And the word end is the word destruction. It's the Greek word apollyon. Uh, to destroy something in, in biblical language is not just to throw it away. It, it's to undo it. It is to dismantle it. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if you saw the or read about the uh, the rocket launch that Elon Musk did. It, it made it a minute and a half or though, and then blew up, and it just it blew up spectacularly. And uh, what they said happened was a rapid, uh, a rapid, unexpected disassembly. That's what they. That's that's what they called it. A rapid. Unexpected disassembly. Well, yeah, it blew up. So, yes, that was rapid and unexpected, and it, and it was disassembled. It was destroyed. It, 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 didn't, it wasn't just buried and left to rot. It was undone. That's the word here. So to bring those wretches to a wretched end is really significant. Uh, it's as though what the chief priests and the elders are saying is that nothing the landowner does would be too extreme. They deserve everything that he does. Nobody would stop him and say, okay, wait, that's going too far. In fact, they might even think you can't go too far with people like this. And then they also fully agree that the landowner has a right to receive his share of the harvest, a right to... He has the right to lease the vineyard to those who will pay him his fair share. It's his property. He didn't just invest money in it. He, he oversaw, was involved with the building of it, the clearing of the land and the planting of the vines and the building of the wall and the building of the wine press and the tower for protection. He's got his life's blood in this. It's not just an investment. It's his creation. So just thinking about the passage somewhere, so far, I, I, I'm really hoping you're more discerning than a chief priest or an elder. I'm really hoping that, that at least by this point, you're, you're understanding Jesus was speaking about these men. That God the Father is the landowner. That Israel is the vineyard. That the people of Israel, and especially the leaders, are the vine workers, the vine growers. That the desired harvest is love expressed through faith and obedience. And I get that, by the way, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And as he goes on in the law to describe what love means, love means faith and obedience. That's what the father was looking for the whole time with Israel. And it's what he almost never 
ever got from them. The slaves that are sent to receive the harvest are, I think, the judges and the prophets who kept calling the people back to faithfulness. Israel was almost never faithful. It was really rare. Their their pattern was to be unfaithful. During the 400 years of the judges, God kept bringing in nations to punish them, and then they would repent, and he would send in a judge to deliver them. But that judge was doing more than getting rid of the enemies. That judge was saying, change your ways. Love your God. Trust him. Serve him. Be faithful to him. And he'll bless you. And that, that would happen for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And then off they go again with idolatry. Hating him by distrusting him and by disobeying him. And then God begins to send them prophets. Now, there are uh, predictive prophecies in the prophets. The virgin shall conceive and, and give birth to a son is a predictive prophecy. But most of the work of the prophets had to do with the people in that moment being called back to what God had commanded them to do. He didn't send them prophets to say, okay, so let's set aside a law. The law, we'll just talk about the future. Zechariah is about the future. Uh, Micah is to some degree about the future. There's some elements of Isaiah that is. But most of the prophets were sent to the people to say, stop doing this. Come back. Return. Stop running away. Before we read the book of Amos, we read the book of Joel. And before that, we read the book of Hosea, which, boy, that is a hard text where God literally depicts his people as a prostitute and himself as the, the, the innocent husband who's being abused. And he demonstrates his love for his people by commanding Hosea to keep bringing her back and back and back. So the prophets continually go back and say, come back. And, and what happened to them? What did the people do? Well, in, in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. That was Jerusalem's character. That was the typical. Receiving the prophet and believing the prophet and trusting what God said through the prophet, that was the, that was the, the, the occasional infrequent thing. The typical thing was simply to throw the prophets away. And then at last the father sent his son. Now in the parable, the human landowner hopes they'll respect my son, they'll respect my son. God the father knew that they wouldn't respect his son. Jesus knew that they would not respect him. The father knew exactly how they would treat his son. Jesus knew exactly how they would treat him. He'd been preparing his disciples for months at this point in, in Matthew. And from the very beginning, he knew that he had come to be given as a sacrifice, to die on a cross, handed over, the, handed over by the Jews to the Romans and put to death. So Jesus confronts the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he confronts them with an extraordinarily joyful passage of Scripture. Jesus said to them, verse 42, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Are you so unfamiliar with the scriptures? Do you not know what's happening here? Psalm 118 uh, is written from the point of view of a faithful, unnamed king of Israel. There are some who believe it's just purely prophetic, that it was not speaking of a particular king at that time at all. If it is speaking of a particular king, we don't know who that king might have been. It's not a named psalm. It's not a psalm of David or Asaph. This king has enemies, but Yahweh in his loving kindness has overwhelmed and destroyed those enemies. There, there are psalms of lament. A lament is a complaint, an agony, a, a cry of pain. There are psalms that are just full of lament, and, and maybe toward the end of the psalm, God is the, the one who brings hope. In this psalm, he can barely keep his eyes on his enemies because he is so drawn to his God. Earlier on, the psalmist says, my enemies are like I'm surrounded by bulls. It's like being surrounded by angry bulls. Here he says, I'm surrounded by my enemies. My enemies are like bees. Bees. Okay, they're annoying. They're making a lot of noise. They're all over the place, but they're hardly bulls. Then he says, my God is going to extinguish you like thorns that are on fire, like a thorn bush that is on fire. Now, I've, I've never seen a thorn bush that is on fire, but we come from California, and it's not unusual in California for 10 or 20 or 30 or 50,000 acres to be on fire and for it to take weeks to put out. I don't think it would take weeks to put out a thorn bush that was on fire. There's just not th that much there to burn. So he says, even the destruction of my enemies is just, it, it's just over. And he brings himself again and again in rejoicing. And then he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So all buildings are made out of stone, generally limestone. The cornerstone was a massive piece of stone that was carefully cut so that it was kind of in a, an L-shaped with a riser. And it was, it was as square as they could make it. They would prepare the foundation. They would set that stone down. And as long as they followed the line of that stone this way and that way and up, their building would be square. The builders came by and looked at this stone and said, no, that's, we can't use that for anything. But God said, that's the foundation for my kingdom. And this is from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then from that point, that's in verse 23. Then from 24 to the end of the psalm is this shout of praise. So Jesus' confrontation with these men is, do you understand the joy of this moment? Haven't you read? This is what's happening But then he pronounces a judgment on them. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This, this judgment has two forms. First, they're going to lose their privilege. They're going to lose their position. 
The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It'll be given to a nation that produces the fruit of it. The word nation is the Greek word ethnos. It doesn't have to do with a political entity. It has to do with a people. In the Bible, what we see here, it's singular. In the Bible, there's only really two peoples. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Israel is going to lose it. And the Gentiles are going to receive it. For centuries, Yahweh had been warning his people through his prophets that the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah faced judgment, that they would be taken captive by Assyria. He was very specific. And they did what what we might do and said, oh, well, okay, someday, but that's, that's, that's way off then. That's just way off then. I don't have to worry about it. Somebody might have to worry about it, but I don't have to worry about it. And they lived for generations that way. But then, you know, it came down in the nation of Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel up in the north. It came down to the ninth year of King Hosea. And all of a sudden for King Hosea, it wasn't way off then. It was today. Today. And a hundred or so years later, it, it ceased to be way off in the distance and it became Zedekiah. And they killed his sons in front of him and then they blinded him and then they took him captive. It was no longer way off then, it was now. Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. He's not speaking conceptually to Israel. He's speaking to these men. You're losing it. This loss would take place within an eight-week period of time. Eight weeks. This, as I said, I think that this is taking place on Tuesday. On Friday, Jesus would be crucified, buried, and rise on Sunday. He would appear to his disciples and others over a period of 40 days ascend to heaven and 10 days later on at the feast of Pentecost on the first day of the week the spirit would come and the church would be born this is going to be taken away from you over the next two months it's gone you've lost it it's not a warning it's not uh, if you don't do something if you don't respond if you don't believe if you don't repent it's this is now done this is now done The second part of the judgment is that they're going to lose their lives. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The general consensus of commentators is that falling on the stone means attacking or seeking to destroy it. Limestone's not particularly hard stone. Granite's pretty hard. There's some pretty hard stones out there, but limestone's not particularly hard. It's relatively easily shaped if people know how to work stone. Jesus says you can show up with your jackhammers and and your sledgehammers. You can show up with your chisels, and it's simply going to shatter the one who tries to attack it. That's for those who are aggressively, arrogantly trying to destroy him. What about those who just kind of apathetically try to ignore him? On whomever it falls, they'll be smashed to dust. We like the idea of Jesus being Savior, but he's also judge. He's also the judge of the world. He says in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. 
because he is the son of man. In Acts 17, Paul writes that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world by a man that he is raised from the dead. That's Jesus. Jesus is the judge. So the wicked either seek to fall on Christ to destroy him or ignore him in the hope that he'll go away, but both face eternal judgment. That is the warning. Those who came against him to destroy him as the vine growers did the, the landowner's son, those wretches are brought to a wretched end, and they agreed to it. What do you think should happen to those who killed this man's son? They should suffer anything he wants to do. They've already agreed to it. They've already acknowledged the justice of that. So life is not a game. Sin is not a toy. Salvation is not an empty promise. And judgment is not a joke. We have to take it seriously. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Now, I like to think positively about myself. I like to think that if I was standing there with them, that when Jesus said this and it struck me, he's talking about me, that I would be broken and that I would repent. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that's not true. These men understood him very clearly. They were going to lose the kingdom and lose their lives. Their hatred and violence and wickedness are exposed, but it makes no difference. They still want to seize him. Although they were still seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds. They were more afraid of the crowds than they were of Jesus. It's why they sent a squad of soldiers in the middle of the night to arrest him. It's why his trials took place in the middle of the night. And take him here in the dark and take him here in the dark and take him here in the dark. And by the time you get up for breakfast that Friday Friday morning in Jerusalem, Jesus is already on his way to Calvary. It's too late for the crowds to step in. It's all been done secretly. In order to bring about the redemption of his people, God permitted the wicked a moment of victory. A moment of victory. Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one can take my life. I lay it down. So even on the cross, they didn't kill him. The good news about that is that when Jesus said, it is finished, and yielded up his spirit, atonement was done. There is nothing for you to do. If your faith is in him, there's nothing for you to do. It's accomplished. It's done. He didn't go to hell to suffer for anybody's sins. He said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'll be in paradise. You'll be with me. Because on the cross, he says, it's finished. And then he yielded up his spirit. He didn't die because a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his sight. He was already dead. But Jesus has died and they can claim some kind of victory. He's buried. And they, they ask for and receive some Roman soldiers to guard the tomb in order to seal him in there. And they have, they have a day of victory. And then sometime early Sunday morning, we don't know what time, he rises from the dead and that stone comes bursting away from that tomb. They can't keep him in there. They can't keep him in there. Was there any hope for them? Yes, they could confess their sin and appeal to him for mercy. But do you see that there's no words that he says that causes them to break? I'm not a geologist but I'm pretty sure that breaking rocks doesn't make them soft. It just makes them small. 
It takes a work of the spirit to take our dead rock stony heart and make it a heart of flesh that is warm and tender and responsive to, to the Lord. That takes a work of the spirit of God. As we bring this home, um, it's an interesting parable. There's, there's some wonderful theological truths here. It's a little hard to provide a personal application to this because it was not meant for personal application in, in that sense. I'm going to try and offer you one, but first let me just give you the theological application of this. All of this took place because Yahweh is doing serious business with Israel. He had chosen them as his people 2,000 years before through Abraham. He sent his son to them. Their rejection of the son didn't mean that his redemptive purposes were, were frustrated. This is his purpose. Romans 11, 11 says, By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Romans 11.32 says that God has imprisoned both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience so that he may show mercy to those who believe, whether they are Jewish or Gentile. Again in Romans 11, using the picture of an olive tree, Paul says that the Jews were broken off because of their unbelief and the Gentiles were, were, were grafted on through faith. But then he says to the Gentiles, don't hold the Jews in contempt. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite true, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. So don't think that you are grafted in because you're better. You're grafted in by the mercy of God through faith. Don't be haughty. That is, don't view the Jews with contempt, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches when they became faithless and rejected Christ, he won't spare you either. He's not saying that Christians have to fear losing their salvation. He's saying that the gift that was given to the Gentiles can be removed from the Gentiles just as easily. And then toward the end of this chapter, he says he's going to graft Israel back in. You and I are enjoying a, a period of mercy upon us as Gentiles. Israel lost the kingdom because she refused to receive and trust the Son of God. We are, as Gentiles, we're, we're vulnerable to the same judgment. And one day that judgment will happen and he will restore Israel. Not because she's better, but because by his spirit he has granted them regeneration and faith. That's what's happening in the story. As Jesus goes to the cross, this drama uh, between God and, and Israel is being played out before us. That's what we see. But I, I want you to take something home to think about personally. And so I'm not reading loosely. I'm simply taking an observation from the, the text we've read. And that is Jesus knows you he knows your secrets. He knows your secret sins. Do you have secret sins? Of course you do. There are things that you do that you will only tell God and maybe not him. That's a secret. We all have them. He knows that. So, surprise, you're caught. You imagine 
a couple of bad guys dressed in black masks, armed with guns, knives, clubs, hiding in an alley in some inner city, and they're just waiting for a victim to walk by in the dark. They hear footsteps coming down the sidewalk and they press against the wall and they shush each other up and they just walk for this innocent victim to walk by or just wait for that innocent victim to walk by so they can leap out and have their way. The footsteps get closer and then this person comes around the corner with a massive flashlight and he's got them right in their view and they're caught. These Jews kept trying to kill Jesus when they were caught. You've been caught in your sin. He knows about it. And so you can safely confess it. You can't disappoint him. He knows about it. You're not going to shock him with what you say because he knows about it. Until we are glorified, we're going to fight an ongoing battle with sin. And we'll find it with different levels of success at different times. Jesus knows every single weakness you have, every single fear you have, every single sin you have, so confess it. He died for those things. It's not that when you confess those sins, God pauses time, goes back in time, and punishes Jesus for that sin, and then comes back and restarts time. He died for all of your sins, once for all time. So be set free. The issue is not whether he knows and you can be forgiven. The issue is whether you will continue to labor under the burden of those things, thinking nobody knows, thinking you're getting away with it, thinking they don't matter. Rather than saying, Lord, you know me, you know what I've done, you know all things about me, and I lay these things that I'm so ashamed of, I don't even want to speak them to you, Lord. I lay them down before you, and I ask for your mercy, and I ask for your help, and you'll receive it. There's a final point of application here. Jesus is the stone which the builder rejected, but Yahweh made the chief cornerstone. This is from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. What does that mean for you and I today? See, there's application in Psalm 118 for this, and this is how I'm going to bring it to a close today. Beginning with verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Somebody should write it like a little chorus about that. Wouldn't that be good? Oh, Yahweh, save. Uh, by the way, that's Hosanna. Oh, Yahweh, succeed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the psalmist we don't know who wrote those words that our Savior, who we do know, quoted. We thank you that because Jesus is the chief cornerstone and that you have made him the foundation of your kingdom and the source of all of our hope and the anchor for our souls, that we can rejoice because this is the day that you have made.
This day brings different things for each one of us. It certainly brings earthly life and fatigue. For some, it brings disappointment. For some, it brings struggle. But if we know you, even though all of those other things are true, all of the pains, all of the weaknesses, all of the frustrations, we can still rejoice because it's the day that you have made. And Lord, finally, (coughs) at the end of all of that, we can give thanks to you because you are good. And your loving kindness endures forever. It chills my heart to think about those men standing in front of you, Jesus. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be caught in my sin and my questions and my doubt and resist you. I want to be overwhelmed by you. I want to be overcome by your spirit and granted faith. I want to be faithful today and faithful tomorrow. And you've promised as the cornerstone to keep your building, your church straight. As others try to add on weird angles and materials and ideas We can test them by your word because your word is as straight as you are. Ultimately, our hope is in your perfection and strength and perseverance as the chief cornerstone, as the foundation for our lives that can't be shifted no matter how much the storm rages. We give you thanks today We ask for your blessings upon those who are not with us. Grant them your peace. And return us next week, Lord, to worship you again. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed.